my dad works in B2B marketing, but I never really knew what that meant. Then one day, my dad came by my school for career day and told everyone in my class he was a big MQL man. Then he just kept saying things like, the more MQLs, the better, over and over. My friends still laugh at me to this day. I think it means marketing qualified lead. One thing's for sure. I'll be known as the MQL man's kid for the rest of my days. Why couldn't you just be a fireman or a lawyer? Why? You ruined my life, Dad. Not everyone gets B2B, but LinkedIn has the people who do. And with ads on LinkedIn, you'll be able to reach people based on job title, industry, likelihood to buy, and more. Start converting your B2B audience into high-quality leads today. We'll even give you $100 credit on your next ad campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash customer to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash customer. Terms and conditions apply. LinkedIn, the place to be, to be. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleh Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of The Mark Moss Show, where we talk about Bitcoin and we talk about the decentralized revolution that is happening right now that we're witnessing uh, each and every week. I'm trying to bring to you the most up-to-date education so you can understand what's going on, the latest breaking news. So, of course, you can be the most educated person at that cocktail party this weekend and some very interesting people to give you some different perspectives um, and some insights that maybe I can't provide. And so uh, if you are not already, if you haven't already, bookmark this, grab your phone. If you're not driving, pull pull out your phone, make a calendar appointment to be with me each and every week at this time, at this channel, same time, same place. You know the drill. Um, If you are driving, do it later. Um, I'm in the studio today with Spike Cohen, and uh, Spike was a vice presidential candidate um, in 2020 for the Libertarian Party. And uh, you can find him on Twitter, at RealSpikeCohen. Very interesting. I've been following him for quite a long time. Uh, I love his takes. Anyway, uh, Spike, uh, thanks so much for joining me today. Absolutely, Mark. Thanks for having me on, man. Yeah, so uh, it was kind of cool. Like I've been following you on Twitter for a while. I love I love the takes that you have. And then uh, just recently, somebody I think that saw me speaking at Ron Paul's conference is like, "Oh, I got to get you connected with Spike." And, um, and then it turns out you've seen some of my stuff and retweeted some of my stuff. And I love how it works out like that. It's pretty cool. 
Yes. Yeah, it worked out perfectly. Shout out to Guillermo for facilitating all of this. So, uh, Spike, I I, uh, I kind of threw out a little bit. I mean, you were the vice presidential candidate of uh, of mm-hmm. the Libertarian Party. Give us a little bit of background on uh, on on you and and how you got into that position and what you're doing. Sure. So my background is actually more in business than in politics. I, I kind of came out of nowhere, seemingly because of that. Um, I started a web design company when I was in my teens. Uh, and I successfully grew that into, I mean, I wasn't Fortune 500 or anything like that, but it was a successful company. And uh, and then six years ago, uh, I was diagnosed with MS. Um, and that coupled with the talks we were having about the the course of treatment and things like that made me realize our life is finite. I had reached a point in my life where I really didn't need to work anymore for money. And I really started kind of rethinking what I wanted to do and what purpose I wanted to have in my life. And and I realized I wanted my life to, I wanted for the world to be a better place because I was here and for it to have even mattered that I was here. And the best way that I could see to do that was to talk to people about the fact that they do best when they're most free. Um, And that got me into um, libertarian activism, uh, which sort of parlayed its way almost accidentally into my getting the uh, the libertarian vice presidential nomination. I didn't actually think they were going to nominate me. I just was giving them ideas about how they could better message and better reach out to people. And then they ended up picking me. Um, so that's uh, that's what got me where I am. And, and since then, I've been continuing to hit the road and, and spread the message of liberty and work with activists across the country to help do that. Mm, that's great. Now, for everybody listening, the Mark Moss Show, we talk about Bitcoin, but really, I like to focus on the intersection of politics, finance, and technology, which, of course, is Bitcoin mm-hmm. to me. Um, I don't. Uh, I think Bitcoin is apolitical. Um, it's not prescribed. It's it's technology. It's an open source protocol. Um, I think people bring their own biases to it, and so uh, we'll talk about some of those things. And uh, I would say, just to the listener, just keep an open mind. Uh, it's not about uh, politics or assigning one necessary way to another, but have an open mind about that. But um, I'm just curious, Spike. Um, so you were a business person, and then you found yourself uh, wanting to kind of submit to a high in- higher calling or do something positive, I guess, and that led you to the Libertarian Party. Um, had you been a libertarian candidate, or not candidate, but a libertarian before that, um, or or it's involved in politics before that, or was that like something new that that dragged you in there? So I'd never really been involved in politics other than giving my opinion and stuff like that, but I had never really actively been involved in politics. And when I started off in my activism, politics wasn't, or, or political party politics wasn't actually my, my initial intention. Like I said, when I first ran for the vice presidential nomination, I did it in somewhat of a tongue-in-cheek way and really was more just trying to present here is how we can present ideas of liberty better. And apparently I did a pretty good job of selling my ideas because they ended up nominating me to be the the uh, the actual candidate. Um, but, uh, but no, so I, I actually, and I tend to agree with you when it comes to uh, Bitcoin and, and, and DeFi and all of that. I actually, I'm not sure I think it's apolitical as much as anti-political. If politics is groups, if politics is groups of people who are trying to basically force people into their quote-unquote solutions by first denying, at least partially denying, their self-ownership, their autonomy, and their property and their and their money that, that comes forth from that, then anything that robs them of that ability to rob you, uh, to steal from you, inherently robs them of that ability to engage in politics. Um, and so I actually see 
the blockchain in general, and especially Bitcoin, as being a, an actual act against that, against the ability for politicians and policymakers to be able to exert themselves in any real way. If we are are, are absent of, of or outside of their system they've built, then they really can't control us. So then you're saying that apolitical means that uh, it's not assigned to one political party or another versus what you're saying. Anti-political right. means it's the end of politics where uh, it, it's not about one party or another, but actually um, no party that could co-opt you or, or try to put you in that group. Not just no party, but the end of these coercive systems, or at the very least, a great reduction and a, and a disempowering of those coercive systems. Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, yes, it is also apolitical in that it is not left or right or, uh, you know, I, I will say I do believe it's libertarian as opposed to authoritarian, but not libertarian in terms of a political party or something like that. Uh, but no, I think it goes further. I think it actually diminishes their capability and their capacity to inflict their harm on us through the ability to manipulate the the, the currency and the, and the money that they force us to use. Yeah, 100%. I'm working on a, a bigger book. We were talking about a smaller book I just wrote but a bigger book. And um, in it, I have a section of the, de the death of politics and um, basically talking kind of the same way how um, you don't, you, pol politics is, is, uh, has, has kind of emerged uh, really as a function of kind of coming out of this industrial age um, and all this centralization that's happened because of that. And as we start to decentralize and, and to your point, start taking away the money supply, um, it starts to take away their power and starts to change. And, and even with technology, we organize ourselves differently. And it just kind of takes away the need for a lot of that stuff, I guess. Um, oh, I, I definitely agree. The The first example that that was or, or widespread example that was ever given of a government happened in uh, the uh, in Mesopotamia. And the first governors were actually called ditch bosses. And it was someone who decided how much water in their agricultural system each person could use. Maybe that was the best system they could come up with at the time. But the fact that we're still using that same coercive model, uh, you know, thousands of years later, I think at the very, if it ever was the best model that humans had available, we've certainly uh, progressed past that. Yeah. Now, one thing that I love about your story is that um, a problem that it seems I have anyway with people in politics is that we have these career politicians that have uh, basically never done anything. And so because of that, they're detached from reality. They've never had to balance yeah. a budget or, or hire someone or actually try to produce a profit um, versus you coming from the um, actual business world. And uh, you have a different perspective on that. Is that something that you probably see with a, you know, a, a typical problem with the politics or politicians, I should say? I think the three biggest differences that I know, and yes, that's a huge problem. The three biggest differences between me and what you would typically see in a politician or elected official is number one, I actually come from knowing things from living in the real world and, and not just being in, a, in career politics. Number two, I'm not particularly concerned about getting elected to anything. If I do get elected to something, that's fine. But first and foremost, I'm trying to reach people and share a message with them. And then the third thing is, and this has been in talking with quite a few elected officials, uh, everything from the federal level on down, they are often very bereft of any knowledge. They have their narratives, their talking points, they're good at their at their optics, but in terms of, of a deep knowledge of anything, that's often very lacking. Um, and so I, I'm, in that way, I'm, I'm, I'm different, I think, than most politicians. Uh, with that said, I always, I, I, when I tell people, don't trust politicians, don't, don't take their word for it. I include me in that, you know, don't just take my word for anything. Uh, but, but yeah, that's, uh, there's, that's definitely a huge problem in politics, is politicians that are basically going off of narratives and, and, and uh, catchphrases and talking points that are being handed to them. Yeah. 
All right. Um, and there's uh, so much that I want to dig into here. I have so many questions. And of course, you're listening to The Mark Moss Show. We're talking about Bitcoin and the decentralized revolution and how it could change or maybe even eliminate politics as we know it. It's a big subject. I'm going to dive in more. I'm with uh, Spike Cohen, at Real Spike Cohen. I'll be back with more in a second. Don't go away. All right. Welcome back. You are listening to The Mark Moss Show. We're talking about Bitcoin. We're talking about the decentralized revolution that is happening right now that we're witnessing. And something that I've been talking a lot about is how Bitcoin is going to change the world for any number of ways, one of which is that it changes the way that we interact. It changes the way that we organize ourselves. And because of that, it's going to change the course of humanity, right? It's a technological revolution, not a new technology, a, a revolution that changes the course of humanity. We're talking about how it could change politics, and I've even said uh, it could be the death of politics. I'm in the studio joined by Spike Cohen. You can find him on Twitter, at RealSpikeCohen. Uh, he was the vice president libertarian candidate for uh, in 2020, and uh, he's a previous business owner who found himself in politics. Now, Spike, um, a question I was thinking too is that um, you you said that, you know, you had the business, um, you were sort of drawn to politics only because you thought that you needed to do something better to kind of do some good in the world. You didn't need politics. I'm curious what it was like trying to work inside that system. Uh, uh, what did you learn about politics from being inside the belly of the beast? So the thing is, because I've never been an elected official and I've never been in any of the major parties, I may not have been as deeply into the belly of the beast. But in terms of just being involved in the political system, it's a terrible system. Uh, anyone who follows the Libertarian Party, even if you agree with our ideals, one of the things you'll notice is the constant infighting. And the reason there's constant infighting is the same reason we have constant infighting in government, is because we are because we are trying to have a political party that has to comply with state and federal election law, we are forcing ourselves into this de facto democracy. And when you force people into a democracy, and, and, and meanwhile, I shouldn't say force, we're all choosing to be a part of it, but as a quote unquote necessary evil to be involved in party politics, we're subjecting ourselves to a democracy, which means that instead of the best ideas rising to the top as a result of supply, demand, and price signals, the best ideas are in theory rising to the top from everyone arguing with each other and forming political factions and fighting other factions and constantly fighting over who's in charge of the narrative. And that's why there's the constant infighting. You know, a democratic system or, or really a political system in general turns your neighbor who might have a different opinion from you into your enemy, potentially, depending on how far their opinion is from yours. And that's extrapolated out to the division we see in society, that we see in our country, that you even see in your neighborhood. And, uh, you know, that's before you even get in, into the corruption that happens when you actually get into office. Do you think that the Libertarian Party actually has a chance or are we stuck in a two party system? So I think, first of all, we've been doing it the wrong way. I think the Libertarian Party has focused so long on finding someone who's going to win the White House by tricking everyone into voting Libertarian. And then after that happens, they're going to trickle down liberty on the rest of the world. And yet that's not what we believe as Libertarians. We believe that good ideas happen from a decentralized manner, uh, from people that voluntarily recognize that, you know, that this is a good idea and that the, the demand uh, is fed by that supply and that it works up organically from there. 
But then our politics is the exact opposite. We're going to shoot all the way for the top and then trickle it down from there. And uh, so what what where we've been successful is in trying to win more local races, everything from city council races, school board races, auditors races. I think from a political standpoint, long before anyone's going to trust us in the White House or even in Congress or in the governor's mansion, they need to see what we're going to do in their cities and their towns. We can do immediate changes there, harm reduction from what's being done there from now and then work up from there. It's not going to be a slow process or it's not going to be a, an easy or quick process, but we're already seeing it happen. There, there, The number of elected libertarians almost doubled in the last election. So it's certainly happening, uh, but I don't think it's going to happen tomorrow or next year. I like that approach. And actually, that's very tactical. I mean, it's something that we're seeing a lot of the activists uh you know, the George Soros's of the world um, really starting to target those local elections, right? I mean, starting with the district yep. attorneys and things like that. Um, and it seems to have a lot more effect. And I would say um, kind of back to this theme of this kind of decentralization, we're starting to see like this balkanization almost of the United States. And maybe, and feel free to tell me what you think, but maybe it goes back to like uh, the, the, the last election um, when there was uh you know, allegations of uh, of uh, miscounting and whatnot. And it went all the way to the Supreme Court and the Supreme Court kicked it back down and said, nope, that's up to the states. And then fast forwarding through the last two years of the pandemic, uh, we're starting to really see the states starting to kind of, uh, you know, take matters into their own hands. Uh, Texas with their abortion laws. Now we're starting to see them. Uh, Arizona putting this bill together to have uh, Bitcoin as a cryptocurrency or a, a legal tender, et cetera. Yep. And so maybe, do you think one, I guess, is there this balkanization almost in effect um, happening in the United States? And if so, then does that make this uh, grassroots kind of uh, style of politics more effective? Uh, yes and yes. Uh, balkanization is going to be natural in a politically created subdivision of 330 million people who largely share nothing in common. We live in different areas. We're culturally different. We're never going to meet each other or anyone like each other. We have widespread opinions and the entire political system is built around this, this good cop, bad cop routine between the two major parties who are to distract from the fact that they're working together to rob us all blind, uh, are constantly creating this theater of culture wars and and partisan infighting and so forth that feeds that divide even further but even absent that this country as we as it were would not exist absent the threat of murder if if we didn't opt out of it right so uh, it, that so that but and then that's why naturally we're seeing just at the the real politic is becoming one of nullification cities nullifying things they don't agree with at the state and federal level states agree uh, nullifying things they don't agree with at the federal level the federal government arguing and fighting with the states and threatening to withhold money if they don't cooperate with them i actually like that if we're going to have a government if we're going to have a state i want them constantly fighting with each other and i want the the push to be as local as possible for people to recognize that there's a tremendous tremendous amount of political power in simply refusing to cooperate with higher authorities and nullifying their orders from on high and saying, no, we're not going to cooperate with it. Because without that local cooperation, it's usually almost impossible for them to effectively enforce whatever they're trying to impose on us. Yeah, good point. Now, um, this is a bigger topic, but I'm curious, you know, I, I kind of grew up in this kind of uh, grassroots political home and uh, politics is still something discussed around my uh, family and my extended family's uh, kitchen table. Um, you know, I guess I would consider myself a Republican growing up. Uh, I don't like to assign myself to any party anymore. 
Um, I'm for the party that gives me more freedom, <laughs> less government. I don't know which I don't know which party that is anymore. Uh, maybe that's mm-hmm. Libertarian Party. I don't know, right? Is a Freedom Party? I, I don't really know anymore. Um, and uh, it's, it's like not one single party can uh, really give me everything that I want, I guess. Um, but one right. thing that I've had, w- uh, kind of looking at libertarians and anarchists, if you will, or whatever, is like, hey, that's great. Like you have a really good idea, um, but how do we get that to happen, right? The, the 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 machine the political machine the the left and right it's so powerful how do we wrestle that power out of their hands and I guess you've kind of made a good point um, starting at a local level and not trying to go straight for the top but that's one reason why I have been so excited about Bitcoin over the last uh, you know decade yes. is because I feel like we we actually no actually we have a tool now and whereas like libertarians were kind of hopeless. I'm curious your thoughts on that. We're going to talk about that in a second. Um, You're listening to The Mark Moss Show, and we are talking about Bitcoin, and we're talking about this decentralized revolution, uh, a revolution, a technological revolution that will change the course of humanity because it will change the way that we work, organize organize ourselves, and work with each other. Um, I'm in the studio with Spike Cohen. You can find him on Twitter, at RealSpikeCohen. He was the vice presidential candidate for the Libertarian Party in 2020, a former business owner, somebody who gets it um, and has a plan. And uh, we'll dig more into that in a second. So don't go away. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and I'm back for another season of my podcast, Climbing in Heels. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as fully obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. My podcast, Climbing in Heels, is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season, we're taking things up a notch. I'll be talking to some incredible women across so many industries, from models and beauty industry stars to doctors, entrepreneurs, and TV personalities. Climbing in Heels is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Every week, listeners will be able to ask me any questions. I'm answering it all. My life is absolutely crazy with so much going on, and I'm so beyond excited to bring you along for the ride. Whether we're talking red carpet looks, current trends, or products I'm obsessed with, I'm here to be your fashion fairy godmother. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Saleya Mosin, and I've covered economic policy for years and reported on how it impacts people across the United States. In 2016, I saw how voters were leaning towards Trump and how so many Americans felt misunderstood by Washington. So I started The Big Take DC. We dig into how money, politics, and power shape government and the consequences for voters. It's an election year, so there's a lot of focus on the voters that TikTok is reaching. The initial reaction is like, oh, things are looking so resilient. I don't want to be too pessimistic, but I just don't see the political will down in Washington right now to to change their tune. I think the American electorate has been signaling that it expects a rematch of the 2020 election. These are unprecedented times. With new episodes every Thursday, you can listen to The Big Take DC on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals, 
Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slammed dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storm on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, welcome back. You are listening to The Mark Moss Show, and we're talking about Bitcoin. Always talking about Bitcoin. Always talking about the decentralized revolution. (laughs) Always talking about the way politics, finance, and technology are intersecting with each other and about to change the world. If you're just joining us, I'm in the studio with uh, Spike Cohen, at Real Spike Cohen. You can find him on Twitter, 2020 Libertarian Candidate, Vice Presidential Libertarian Party Candidate. Now, Spike, before the break, I was saying how, um, you know, while I like what the Libertarians do, uh, shout out to uh, Ron Paul, kind of uh, running that. Um, I, I got to speak on a stage with him a few weeks ago, as I was saying, was was pretty amazing. Highlight of my my life. Uh, well, I don't know about my life, but one of the, one of the key points. But anyway, uh, one thing I've always kind of looked at these libertarians and these anarchists is like, hey, you know, your ideas are great uh, and that's cool. And like, maybe we should try that. But like, how is that ever really going to work? And as I was saying before the break, like, I finally feel like maybe there's actually something that we can do. And it just seems like most libertarians and most anarchists have overlooked that. Um, would you agree with that? Is that something that you've seen? I think that a lot of libertarians and anarchists and, and liberty lovers in general, maybe even those that that consider themselves constitutionalists or whatever, but people who want far less control and less government than we have now, I think a lot of them have just shrugged their shoulders and resigned themselves that it's going to be this way. You hear this a lot from people that, well, you know, most people are stupid and they're sheep and they want to be controlled. And so the idea that we can actually effectively uh, forget, you know, el- you know, uh, uh, eliminating the state or, or even greatly reducing it, but have any kind of real uh, uh, progress towards more freedom. I think they've given up on it. But I think, and I, you know, you alluded to this before the the last break. Um, I believe that Bitcoin and DeFi and the blockchain are possibly the first and certainly one of the the first in our lifetimes effective tools to greatly reduce the amount of control that people in power have i mean think about it with bitcoin and uh and and i I believe you're a bitcoin maximalist so i won't say crypto but with bitcoin with DeFi, with whatever these are basically anti-theft systems right like the, the current system we have right now is your dollar bill 
is worth your your money that your US dollars that you're sitting on for that matter your, your euros whatever fiat currency you have is based entirely on the whim of policymakers and they literally print out trillions of new notes every single they don't even bother printing them out now they just add it to a digital ledger and they hand it off to uh you know to their political cronies and the people that help get them in office the government agencies that they want to see bigger and everything else and the thing is when they do this they're adding more money without adding more value which means that money is chasing the value which means that as more money chases the value the value of each of those uh, individual currencies goes down and the cost of living goes up the closer you are to the distri distribution of that new money the more money you get and the further away you are from it the less money you get but the price goes up about the same for everyone and that's why we see this growing gap between those who have and those who haven't it's theft we're being robbed and something like bitcoin completely eliminates their ability to do that yeah how does it uh how does it start to build those cracks widen those cracks how does it start to penetrate i mean we've seen a lot of entrenchment in the in the in the political sphere already a lot of senators congressmen etc that are starting to adopt bitcoin but how does it start to wrangle that power away how do you see that playing out i guess I, I see it playing out over a long and 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 uh, sometimes frustrating slog. Uh, you know, I think it was Hayek who said, you know, the, one of the best, uh, most effective ways we could uh, uh, control or have more power is to take away the currency uh, control of currency from from the state. He said, but that obviously he, we can't do it. He said, there, there shall never be another sound money again until we take the thing from the hands of the government. Yes. but it can't be done yep. by force. Exactly. And so he was basically, you know, coming up with the reason for the eventual Bitcoin white paper, right? Like he was saying, it's not going to be done by force. It has to come from it just being such a no brainer, better alternative to fiat currency. And so I think it's just going to be this constant thing. There's going to be more and more regulations to try to restrict it. There's going to be this uh, uh, vacillating between coping with just, uh, you know, adapting it as official tender, legal tender, or trying to restrict it. But I think at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter it's just going all they can do is delay the inevitable because bitcoin because DeFi, and for that matter all of the solutions that are coming out of the blockchain not just currency based but every solution that's coming out of it is better than one that's centralized and based on coercions and implicit threats of violence and the use of violence anything that's based on supply and demand is always going to be better based on better than something that's based on i will kill you if you don't do it yeah yeah, always right. <laughs> without without the coercion, uh, a free. Uh, right. Imagine imagine a free and voluntary exchange. Uh, so revolutionary, right? Um, <laughs> right. It seems though, like I mean, if you look at like the political sphere today, I mean, it's, it seems like uh, we're almost approaching a climax. And maybe it seems like we've been approaching a climax for a long time. But um, yeah. you know, I've done a lot of work on this these cycles that are happening, and we're kind of in this middle of this like two hundred fifty year revolution cycle, and then you have like this eighty year kind of fourth turning cycle, and all these things are kind of coming together right now. And, uh, you know, we're at a point where like, um, we're at like peak centralization. You have like these, you know, World Economic Forum and World Health Organization and UN and IMF kind of like peak centralization. Yep. And at the same time, we're seeing um, the narrative is really starting to fall apart and trust is like plummeting really, really fast. And like that trust or that confidence in this, in the leaders in the state, man, once that goes, it, it goes really quick. I mean, I kind of think that we might see something some maybe real big change happen in the next like five years do you think that's too soon I don't. In fact, I, I personally think, and you know, everyone put your tinfoil hats on before I say this. Oh, I, I, love, I, I love the tinfoil hats. We Let's don't. Get it. <laughs> okay. So I think that it is increasingly likely, 
based on the reports that are coming out, that the COVID-19 virus itself may have come from as a result of gain of function research. We already know that the US government was funding gain of function research, which yep. created at least one virus that was 96% similar to COVID-19. That's established fact that right. the government themselves admitted that. I think that it is very likely uh, and possible that over the next year or so, it is eventually going to come out that yes, this specific virus was as a result of gain of function research, either from the US, maybe the Chinese government, maybe some other government, and that it ended up accidentally leaking, and that multiple governments, including the Chinese government and probably the US government as well, were involved in trying to cover it up and pretend it didn't happen. In the midst of everything that has happened with COVID-19, the millions of deaths, the lockdowns and all the devastation that have caused, and just the sheer amount of anxiety that the average person on this planet not just in this country, but on the planet, sure. has experienced as a result of this virus and the ancillary things. If they end up finding out that this all happened because of government and that they tried to cover it up, it, we can't even imagine the amount of distrust that is going to create, not just in those specific governments, but in the entire concept of, oh, well, they're doing these things to protect us. Right. I think the level of trust in these systems is going to completely plummet as a result of that. Again, we don't know that's going to happen, and, and I'm not saying it's going to happen. If it does happen, yeah. then your five-year prediction is that it, it won't take well, anywhere the, near the, that long. The thing with that, though, is that it's, it's back to the trust, right? And so the fact that yeah. they openly are, uh, and and uh, in your face are trying to censor and shut down any talk, any yes. communication, any report, it just leads us to think they have something to hide. If you had a business partner that you yes. suspected was embezzling, for example, and uh, you asked him about some expenses and he got all nervous and wouldn't, wouldn't, you know, took the books away from you and wouldn't let you look at him, well, then it's like, well, hang on, like, uh, I think you're probably now stealing from me, right? Um, versus if he's like, no, like, let's take a look. Here's the banks and here's, right? That'd be open and transparent. And so- when you have the government yes. basically doing the same thing right now, I mean, uh, 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 Saki was saying uh, yesterday or day before that they should do more to censor Joe Rogan's podcast, and uh, I mean, <laughs> they're at, I mean, so in your face trying to censor everything, and that doesn't yep. it doesn't lead to trust. <laughs> no, it doesn't. And honestly, I'm glad that they're being more open about what their intentions are, both because it is causing distrust and because finally th this whole, well, Facebook is a private company nonsense is over. Facebook wasn't doing this as a private company. Facebook and Twitter and the rest of these social media were doing it at the behest and sometimes the order of government here and around the world. And, and I'm glad that that's out of the bag and we don't have to pretend that anymore. Yeah, there's a saying, and I don't know who said it, but it's like... Uh... You don't you don't prove a man wrong by ripping out his tongue, right? You only prove that he has, right. that you have something to hide, kind of a thing, right? Yeah. And so uh, I've always believed that the truth wins, right? The truth wins in open debate. Um, and yep. uh, you know, I know there's a problem with information today, but I think if you let information be free, then we'll find the truth. Um, not not trying to censor it, and that looks shady. Um, you're listening to the Mark Moss Show. We're we're talking about Bitcoin. Uh, in a long roundabout way, I'm in the studio with uh, Spike Cohen um, at Real Spike Cohen on Twitter. Um, we're talking about politics and Bitcoin and how it's going to change. We'll be back with more. Don't go away. All right, welcome back. You are listening to the Mark Moss Show. We're talking about Bitcoin. We are talking about the decentralized revolution, and today we're talking about how it is changing politics. It's a uh, I'm saying the death of politics. Uh, certainly, um, as uh, Spike here said, anti-politics. I'm in the studio with Real Spike Cohen um, at Real Spike Cohen on Twitter. Um, he was the 2020 Libertarian Party, the vice presidential candidate. Um, and uh, man, Spike, so we started talking about this trust breaking down before the break and, um, you know, how this could lead to uh, massive change, right? Distrust in the system. Um, 
Von Mises said in the crack up boom, but suddenly the people wake up. They realize that inflation is both persistent and intentional. And uh, it's like suddenly, and like we see inflation all over the news today. We Oh, well, 7%, it's persistent. And oh, you mean the Fed's always targeted inflation? It's intentional, right? And so like they're starting to wake up. The trust is breaking. To your point, maybe some stuff comes out on this gain of function. Something maybe happens that, that causes that right away. Um, this morning I saw an article, I forget who, uh, some MSN, Mainstream media um, publication said uh, Nancy Pelosi was uh, speaking out against China and their um, human rights issues with the Uyghurs. And uh, they're actually calling for like a ban on the Olympics over that. And um, I thought, man, what a narrative shift. Like, what are they getting ready for here? Like, why all of a sudden are they turning on China? There must be something that's like caused them to go from like covering it up to now all of a sudden like openly doing that. And so. Um, trust has fallen. Uh, in my opinion, like the cat's out of the bag in a, in a sense, almost like when the printing press came out, the Protestant Reformation happened and there was nothing the church could do to stop it. And uh, that's kind of what we're seeing today. Where do we go from here? Like uh, for the average person, I mean, you've obviously decided you, you made enough money, you wanted to go affect change, you got into politics. Do you think politics is a good uh, use of time for the average person to like really be engaged or is it kind of a waste of time and it's a you know, uh, it's a, a dopamine fix or something. I think it depends on the person and what their goals are. I don't, first of all, I want to say, I, I don't think pi- politics is or should be the primary route by which we try to affect change, um, which is why most of my activism was actually based more and similar to what you're doing, you know, starting my podcast that I do and uh, and doing interviews with other people and talking about my experiences as a small business owner. Getting into political uh, into the political party happened again, almost accidentally. I went in and said, hey, you guys could be doing it this way and saying that this way and maybe doing this. And they're like, OK, great. You're our, you're our candidate. And I'm like, oh, OK, um, so I, I, I don't think that party politics is going to be the way that we save mankind or that we that we are are able to truly free ourselves. I see politics, especially electoral politics, as a means of harm reduction as we use things like counter-economics, as we use, use things like mutual aid and activism, uh, as we use things like education and outreach to bring people into the movement. I, as, as we do that, if we can also use electoral politics to convince elected officials and politicians that it's in their best interest to fight other politicians and try to nullify what they're doing, then that's great. But no, I I don't think we're going to vote our way out of this, no matter how hard we vote. I don't think we're going to protest our way out of this, although protests can certainly have uh, an effect. Um, I think that the main way this is going to happen is going to be from the market coming up with better ways of doing things. And it's going to be fought at every step by those in the political uh, realm and arena because they want their political solutions over actual economic solutions. Uh, But the economic solutions are eventually going to win out. I believe that liberty is going to win. And I believe when it wins, it's going to be because it makes more sense and it works better. So um, I think what you're saying is something that I have been trying to live, which is um, the most effective form of voting is voting with your pocketbook, voting with your money and voting with your feet. And um, that's one reason why I was living in Puerto Rico um, last year. And I left at the end of the year because they got crazy with their mandates. And I'm like, well, you're not going to get my money anymore. I'm going to have to leave now. 
Um, and I just, I, yeah. I can't stay there and give them my money that way. And and we've seen, you know, Texas and Florida have outcompeted California and New York. Both governors found themselves on the chopping block. Uh, one kept his job, one didn't. Um, but, you know, voting with your feet. But we almost kind of have to get a little bit more of this state's rights or balkanization, if you will, in order for that to be really effective, right? Otherwise, if everything's federal, it's maybe doesn't, it's not as effective. Oh, absolutely. I, we're not going to have a federal solution. And for that matter, we're not going to have a 50 state solution. I think, like I said, I, my when I talk to people about the grassroots move uh, in electoral politics for libertarians, and in, incidentally, I'm working largely within the Libertarian Party, but this is also going to include liberty Republicans. It's going to include people that are not involved in politics, uh, uh, political parties at all, and run as a write-in for their school board. So this is not, you know, you have to be a part of the Libertarian Party. But those who choose to get involved in electoral parties, politics, those who are the most effective at reducing the harm being done at the hands of the state are largely going to be finding themselves fighting other politicians and and bureaucrats and policymakers and working to nullify or combat what's happening and that that's largely what we have seen you know the the biggest moves we've seen in the political realm towards liberty have been politicians saying even if it's only to get reelected no I'm going to fight against this I, I'm not going to let this intrusion stand. Yeah. Now, you said you didn't think that the protests were that effective. Uh, I'm sure (laughs) I don't even have to ask. I mean, this 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 trucker convoy going on in uh, Canada has been something to see. And I was I was I was noticing today, actually, I tweeted about it this morning. um, They raised over 10 million dollars on GoFundMe, which is more than every Mm -hmm. political party combined in the last quarter, more (laughs) than Trudeau, more than anybody um, yes. and, and, you know, Trudeau keeps saying, oh, this is some fringe element. This doesn't represent Canada. Right. Um, yep. well, people voted with their money and the money tallies shows that it's not fringe. As a matter of fact, it's more, more important or more powerful than all the political parties t- together. It is the largest political movement in Canadian history. Someone joked, you know, it's bad when Canadians start protesting en masse. Um, uh, By the way, I want to be clear. I said we can't protest our way out of this. I do think protest can be one of the many effective tools. And the trucker convoy is a perfect example of that. The freedom convoy is a perfect example of that. More so than even just, yes, they are bringing people to a message of way more people agree with you than than the media has been telling you that these lockdowns are bad, that these mandates dates are bad. But there's also been the real effect of when these tens and hundreds of thousands of truckers come into these cities that have been under uh, various forms of lockdown and capacity restriction and mask mandates and vaccine mandates for months and years now, all that stuff goes away. In Ottawa, people were walking into stores with no respect to any kind of capacity limitations or max mandates or vaccine mandates, going and buying food, going and eating and everything else. And what was happening was, the police were unable to do anything about it. They had neither the physical means or the capacity to try to stop these people from doing it. And so not only did these these truckers and their supporters demonstrate that there's way more people in Canada and frankly around the world that are against the COVID regime restrictions, but they've also just come in and said, no, I'm not obeying any of this. And they've demonstrated in doing so that there is no such thing as government power. There's only what the people are willing to tolerate. And the moment they're not willing to tolerate it, that ability to effectively enforce goes away. Yeah. When they stop, when they stop giving them their consent. Right. And so that's kind of going back to why I left Puerto Rico. Like I said, it's like, if I continue to stay here and give you my money, because a lot of my friends there were like, oh, you know, just use this fake thing and you can kind of get away with that. And I'm like, no, because if I'm here and I'm giving them my money, then I'm basically telling them that what they're doing is okay. 
And if you look at yeah. like the story of like how the Berlin Wall wall fell or any or really the whole USSR, but you know Berlin Wall, the people stopped consenting, right? The people went and sat on the wall and they said, we're not leaving. And uh, the guards are like, well, we'll shoot you. And they're like, well, then shoot everybody. And the guards are like, well, I guess, right. we, I guess we can't do that. <laughs> and uh, yep. they just stopped consenting. And so uh, uh, I love, uh, I've been reading um, lately a lot of the work uh, that Havel have done and Solzhenitsyn and talking about how the USSR fell. And they talk about how um, whenever you're living in a lie, it just takes one person to kind of break through that crust and live in the truth. And then when other other people see that, then they want to do the same. And then, you know, more and more people join in. And then to your point, they they just can't stop it. You're listening exactly. to The Mark Moss Show. We're talking about Bitcoin. We're talking about the decentralized revolution. I'm in the studio with Spike Cohen, at Real Spike Cohen. Um, it, it, uh, the conversation we've had today and, and how we'll end it is uh, the quote from Samuel Adams that says, it doesn't take a majority to prevail, but rather a small, irate minority to continually light brush fires in the minds of men. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Big Take from Bloomberg News brings you what's shaping the world's economies with the smartest and best-informed business reporters around the world. We cover the stories behind what's moving money in markets and help you understand what's happening, what it means, and why it matters every afternoon. I'm Sarah Holder. I'm Saleya Mosin. And I'm David Gura. Listen to The Big Take on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week, I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic gymnastics, Kane Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.